Hey guys, welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your favorite podcast about why nothing feels possible. I'm your co-host Emmett, and I'm here with John. And today we are going to talk about the 2006 documentary Jesus Camp uh, about the kids on fire. Uh, I think it's Pentecostal evangelical Christian. Yeah, typically. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the. If I remember, I think there right, are some right. some non-Pentecostals there. Like I don't know if Ted Haggard is or not, but yeah, most of these people are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This was a big deal when I was a teenager. So to give you guys some context, this movie comes out in on September fifteenth, two thousand six. So two months before the midterms. What's going on in two thousand six? Well, the financial collapse of the world is about to almost happen two years from then, along with the election of Barack Obama. George sur- Bush is in his second term. George Bush is in his second term. The surge in Iraq is going to happen a year from when it comes out. And we're going to see somewhat of a liberal backlash to the reign of Bush and stuff like that, which has been really fomenting at this point. I mean, I remember I was in my, I want to say senior year of high school when this movie came out. There was this sense of exhaustion that was very different than the sort of malaise that set in once Trump became president. And I think that's basically because we were in a high fidelity war. And like the Terry Schiavo case is happening right now. Jack Abramoff, that scandal has just been cracked open. A few other things are going on at the same time. George Bush has tried to fail to privatize Social Security. You know, and let's not forget, George Bush doesn't like black people, a.k.a. Hurricane uh, Katrina, has been horribly mishandled at this point, which is a big turning point in my memory for even conservative support for George Bush because I went to a Jesuit high school, which of course had a bunch of relationships with other prestigious Catholic high schools in the New Orleans area, which is very, very Catholic. And so when Katrina happened, we got a bunch of kids from New Orleans that had basically migrated away from it. And I remember everyone being pretty shocked at how terribly that was handled. That's also when like, there's basically a green zone set up by the same types of contractors we had in Iraq, setting one up in Katrina. And allegedly, I think he lied about this, but Chris Kyle spent a lot of time murdering bad guys in Katrina at this time. Uh, I wish you meant like looters who were trying to get food because they'd been totally abandoned by their own society. Yeah. That that's maybe something it might be worthwhile to like do a little review of at a later date, because that was one of the most insane things to happen in like decades, at least in terms Mm -hmm. of like, there's just like urban warfare happening now between like people with guns and people without who are getting, just killed for walking around like you know and it was complicated but it was absolutely kind of horrifying and insane to sort of see the reports coming out the anecdotes just the stuff happening in the superdome completely horrifying in a lot of ways that i think it's easy to just sort of forget but yeah that that was going on i think personally for me 06 07 i like discovered immortal technique and i was like listening to that while reading about the like Christian fundamentalist thing, really easy to forget how that was kind of the like boogeyman in a lot of ways. Like 
not even just like they're taking over America, but there are a lot of different organizations pointed to as being possibly like internationalist Christian fundamentalist like fronts, if you will. And the fact that like the major world power was prosecuting a series of wars, which was at least interpreted by groups of people as having a religious content uh, was I think really salient at the time. Like there was a lot of both good and meaningful and totally empty and rhetorical comparisons of what we were doing to the crusades, both for and against, you know, some people Mm -hmm. were like, great, a new crusade. Yeah. There were all sorts of like weird Knights of Malta guys tied up in like the defense department who were like doing shit with Blackwater. Yeah. There was a lot of conspiracy theories around it and it was definitely like just the air was sort of thick with it. It was very easy to believe. And it was easy to think like, okay, going into the future, like these guys are going to be like, you know, big major players or something and like the people to watch out for. Like, Obviously, we don't believe that today, but Mm -hmm. back then it was, that was kind of the thing. And I remember like, I grew up Pentecostal. um, So this was all just like, oh yeah, like I know about this. This isn't that weird to me. Yeah, yeah, totally. Just like, just (laughs) what it is. But I had went through kind of a teenage period of like, I don't know if I believe in that stuff. And then I'm like, Oh yeah, cool. Immortal technique. Like, wait, Bush is bad. Like, (laughs) yo, what? No, what? He's a part of the Illuminati. Yeah. Dude, what? (laughs) So I was going through an interesting shift in my own life when I, you're like, Aloxa, the name is not coincidental. Totally. I tried to show my dad a mortal technique and like looking back, that was never going to take, but it was an interesting <laughs> bit of like childhood naivete. That's so like, lit. He's going to You got to listen to revolutionary volume too. <laughs> but suffice it to be said, like I was kind of coming out of that world and the daily show and like this stuff was sort of turning me into like a nascent rad lib or something. It was just like, yeah, totally. We need to take care of people, stop the wars. Like, there's a lot of dark, shady, bad stuff going on up there, et cetera, et cetera. So watching this, I think the first time I had a pretty similar experience maybe to you where I was like joining in with the people who were like, yeah, this stuff is weird and scary and like cannot believe that it's happening. And I, it's totally like different to watch it today. Yeah. And just for one last little bit of cultural context, around this time, the number one hit is Sexy Back by Justin Timberlake. followed by London Bridge by Fergie (laughs) and then Buttons by the Pussycat Dolls featuring Snoop Dogg Crazy by Gnarls Barkley uh, and then some other stuff including Chasing Cars by Snow Patrol and like (laughs) like a Nickelback song is in like the top 10 as well but (laughs) you know we're looking at it like a very different cultural context in some ways interestingly like a lot of those songs are still about partying not to say that we don't have those now but like there was sort of a cultural denial that was happening at the same time some of this hysterical reaction to the evangelical right was coming up so that's when this movie drops and it sort of opens with what i assume is just church on sunday at wherever carrie fisher is the actual pastor She's doing some sort of youth service or something like that. There's kids with like uh, military face paint on doing some like very intense, like eschatological. It feels like this like Pentecostal Pyongyang moment, but it's like five kids in a carpeted, very austere church. 
And already the camera is asking you to go, isn't this weird? Like, aren't these people strange? And also, isn't this bad? Isn't this troubling that this woman is making these direct correlations to what allegedly Palestinians do to their kids to get them ready to put on a suicide vest, uh, as she describes it, and what she wants to do for the kids under her tutelage? Yeah, I think our like protagonist voice is supposed to be the radio host um, who... Who they... Like, he's got, like, a southern accent, if I remember rightly. But, like, this dude was on Air America. Like, he's Christian. He believes in the Constitution. But they sell it. He was, like, a tort lawyer. Yeah, they sell it as he's just sort of, like, this other conservative. Yeah. Who's kind of confused about what's happening. And I remember being like, damn, yeah. Like, the reasonable conservatives are just being, like, crushed by these crazy evangelicals. And then I went looking into it, and I was just like, this dude's basically an MSNBC liberal. <laughs> oh, totally. He, yeah, he's just like a lawyer who had a radio show for quite a long time. And I think the first time I had the same reaction. I was like, man, like, glad there's some good people out there, but dog, like, this is bad. But then looking at it now, he's just sort of like, you know, kind of meekly defending like enlightenment liberalism or whatever while being like, I think it was a Methodist or something like that. And he's kind of like, yeah, like, I agree with you guys, but christianity's good but like you guys are just going into a dark place with it and it's bad and i think he's supposed to be like leading us like he's the guy that the yeah, audience he's like a greek chorus yeah, yeah that operates throughout it my favorite moment is when he's like he's just like these play- people are so like theologically facile is basically what he's saying like haven't they read mark's gospel like blah 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 sermon on the mount like, yeah sermon on, on the mount yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like a real slow pitch down the middle for like people who have a very passing experience with any Christian theology or any Abrahamic theology, because what you're really taking a look at is like basic schism shit that has been happening like since this all got started between the ancient church, like the old church fathers and the people who were really thought the end was near, <laughs> you know? And why people didn't want there to be like an actual formalized church and the people who thought you were going to need a structure. I mean, this is part of what Augustine is trying to suture together in the city of God. When you have the city of heaven and then you have the city on earth. And how are you going to set up that correspondence so that it makes sense to actually create formal structures of faith that are going to steward this religion until the second coming arrives? And then all of the detractors who are like, you can never know when that's going to happen. So this is going to create a far too earthly kingdom. We need to be more radical. We need to absolutely not care about the societies around us in a pointed way. And when he's doing that slow pitch down the middle, there's just that moment where you're like, dude, you have no idea about your own context. You are as low information as the people you're pointing out as like a bunch of white trash slobs. Yeah. I like that was such a major like moment for me while I was rewatching it because I watched this again in 2016, right? Because I didn't quite have like the Russia Gate response to Trump, but I was like surprised and I was like kind of woke in some ways, and so I thought we were about to hit this like fascist moment, and I went. It was like the 10 year anniversary of you know this movie coming out, and I was just like, oh my god, this warship of Bush. Like, you can really see it. Oh, we've been on this thing. Never mind that, like, Trump really signals the waning of the evangelical right in some ways. Because while they all voted for him, 
and thought he was like this flawed messenger for God's will, it didn't quite have that same like pseudo dignified panache that the Bush admin. Yeah, I I thought for a second the radio host was going to make like more of a point about this, but in the very beginning he talks about like, you know, these people are they're calling Bush a, a man of God, like isn't that kind of crazy? And then I was like, oh, like yeah, are you going to get into that? And maybe he did, but like it cut away kind of quickly. And so I remember when I watched it in 06, 07, that didn't like sink in for me. Like I just maintained the idea that like, yeah, like maybe Bush was corrupt or greedy and they were all corrupt or greedy, but I think they were also like committed fundamentalists as well in my head or whatever. And not like that this was really a matter of like image and simulation to a certain extent. But when I'm watching it now and the lady brings out the cardboard cut out of Bush into a church and they're all speaking tongues over it and praying for his success uh, to be like a Christian leader or whatever. And then you're just thinking like, you know, this guy was like an Ivy leaguer. His family's from Connecticut and like, yeah, he grew up in Texas, but not like how most people grew up in Texas. Like (laughs) their affinity for him seems a bit strange, but I don't think that like, I didn't encounter that idea back then at all, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't either. And I think, you know, looking at it, I was just like, God, this is so weird. Back then, and I remember watching it with my like a high school sweetheart. I had gotten like the DVD from Hollywood Video or something like that, which is like right across the way in a strip mall uh-huh. from my mom's place. You know, we get one of those big ass trays of like Sour Patch Kids, so we like rented <laughs> a bunch of things and like ate Sour Patch Kids together or whatever. And I remember her being like totally horrified, me being kind of like troubled it's like really meant to give you a sinking feeling in your stomach because it does these like post-rock cutaways to the desolation of flyover country they're incredibly condescending now when i look at them it was just like until the light takes us but for like christian (laughs) yo that is exactly (laughs) so for those who don't know until the light takes us is about the um Norwegian black metal scene in the 90s when all of these like reactionaries murdered people and burnt down ancient churches in one of the most, I think, limp statements of postmodern nihilism I've ever seen. Um, Yeah, they were like sort of loosely, chaotically kind of trying to cohere around some vague idea of like being like kind of pagan maybe, but like some of them were more of just like generic Satanists and they were just like, we have to stand up to modernity and like there's a great story of them shooting bb guns at a mcdonald's you know yeah 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 (laughs) and and there are all these like shots of like norway in winter when you like can't see through like the carpathian mist or whatever yeah yeah it's meant to give you the sense of foreboding and like that's basically ambient music yeah that's basically what they're doing with like missouri yeah um you know uh, it's just like oh my god here is the cul-de-sac where all of these psychos who like don't believe in evolution and homeschool their kids or like whatever you know and then you start to ask yourself some basic questions now i do anyway when i'm watching it i'm like it seems to me like something very disingenuous is happening this is acting like the liberal left has like never even thought of waging any sort of culture war all this just kind of came out of nowhere this movie doesn't really go to any lengths to like explain to you who these people are, to elaborate any context. It is doing the exact sort of thing that Susan Sontag criticizes in regarding the pain of others and in on photography, where there's the pseudo objectivity of the camera because it's capturing actual quote unquote events as they happen. 
that is telling you that it's giving you understanding, but is actually decontextualizing the events so that you can project onto it whatever you already believe. You know, I mean, I think some of what these people believe is like silly or I don't like it. Um, the George Bush cardboard cutout speaking tongues thing weirded me out. But how different is that than like Mark Ruffalo being like, I love my black president and God is a black woman. Like yeah. how different is that than all of the weird Marvel and Harry Potter memes or the Wakanda forever shit with Kamala Harris. Like it's all the same. Like in some way, all of politics is just Jesus camp now, both in form, like, oh my God, look at these fucking psychos. And in content, oh, we're like legit just worshiping whoever has power right now. I think that's something the youth pastor kind of got. Like she was pretty pilled on that back then, like compared to us when he was saying like, a fundamental part of living in a democracy and having a separation of church and state is that people learn so that they can decide for themselves. And she was like, I don't think any child ever decides anything for themselves. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's extremely like, based. <laughs> I was like, Oh yeah. <laughs> like, Becky Fisher is very based. Like, you know, you were texting me as you were watching it and you were like, yo, her like anti Harry Potter message is extremely based. And yeah. like after having seen like the Harry Potterfication of all politics where it's like, so-and-so was Voldemort or like, you know, centrist Democrats are Ravenclaws. You're like, Oh Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this had a, a pretty clean. light yeah <laughs> you're like go off Karen. go off becky <laughs> yeah the because i think that what i noticed there was like oh this guy what he believes is like so hegemonic that he thinks that it's not hegemonic he's like oh like people just make decisions about what they want to believe mind god pure ideology <laughs> yeah but she sees it differently because she lives in a world where what she believes is like really decidedly not hegemonic and it was only going to get worse from there for people who are like committed christians in the midwest or the south in terms of like what is the disparity between what you value and believe and what you see in like every single form of media being projected to you it's just going to like the, the the contrast is going to continue heightening. And I think for people who just live with that, it's a lot easier to understand that like, oh, everybody's indoctrinating people. And to the extent that we don't do that, we're losing because they have all the major networks, like the major channels. They run all the social media networks. Like, so I think that it's really easy to see things in terms of like a very sort of like nihilistic modern narrative warfare to -hmm. some extent like not that you're personally a nihilist but just sort of that like truth can be a casualty if you don't fight for it maybe something to that effect yeah it's just so wild to well it feels like such an artifact to go back but i think it's important that this culture war whatever it is like we just never really leave the 60s is how i feel like we just get set into this deadlock of totally bizarre like center versus periphery liberal hegemony versus like conservative backlash that just recapitulates itself over and over and over again. And in that way, it does feel like there's just, you know, Daniel Bell writes the end of ideology in 1950. So I think this is like before the end of history as Fukuyama wants to have it um, in the cold war that might've just been a confirmation or acceleration of an already emergent trend. You know, I think the, like still the hardest parts to watch are the parts with the kids. You know, because you hear the parents' point, 
when they're just like, my kid is getting ideologically programmed at public school in a way that I don't like. And having worked on curriculum, I can be like, yeah, that is like 10,000% happening. (laughs) Like that is what that's for. It is a political project to create a consensus. Now that might just be the way it works when you have public education. And like maybe a democracy needs that to some degree, but you can't say that it's not happening or that it's just this like value neutral thing that's emergent around you, like Pompatino or whatever the radio host name is saying. Mm -hmm. And so I could sympathize with these families who are like, well, I don't have beliefs that fit that. I mean, there's some really rich problems of pluralism that go totally unexplored in this that instead asks you to do like this weird rubbernecking a car accident on the freeway. They paint a really specific picture and I see it maybe differently from how it was intended to be seen. I don't know what these people do for a living. Like one of them had a dad in the military. Typically their houses aren't that nice. They remind me of my childhood in a lot of ways. The main kid had like a huge mullet. You know what I mean? Like That kid's rat tail is glorious. Yeah, like we're not talking about people really rubbing shoulders with George Bush here. Like those people existed, but they were not the subject of this documentary. Yeah. And there is a certain kind of, I could see back then the idea was supposed to be like, wow, these people are freaky and live different from us in a kind of like Lovecraft looking at the swamps of Louisiana sort of way. Like we could never understand the strange magical rituals they're taking part in down there. But I think coming back to it now, it's definitely like the places these people live in have a lot of problems. And if growing up this way, these kids are just stay like really into the church their whole lives and they don't get into heroin, that might be like a win. Yeah, that might be like a net good for them, like at at a personal communal level. Because I mean, here's the thing, like you only see a few of their houses, you know, they tend to be in these big suburban sub developments. They don't live in McMansions, but I just got this feeling now rewatching it where I was like, how many of them kept those houses after 2008? Yeah. That was my question. Like, there are all sorts of follow-ups you can find with the kids on the internet. The one kid who's actually really brave and says, like, sometimes it's hard to believe in God, who seems to be, like, incredibly morally and psychologically sensitive at a young age. Now he's just, like, a hippie, you know, (laughs) that, Mm -hmm. like, rejects all of that, you know, and, like, Levi or whatever his name is just like, yeah, it didn't fuck me up or anything. I'm fine. You know, it kind of sucked, but whatever, that's life. You know, he's a very pretty well-adjusted married guy. But you just look at it and you're like, even if it's not these kids, just how many families like this in general lost everything, everything. You know, you take a look at it. Speaking of like, you know, we were talking about Katrina earlier. Like New Orleans already has like a horrible, super racialized crack problem. And then Oxycontin and fentanyl hit and it just like destroyed. And then like Katrina happens and then the housing crash happened. You almost hope that these, like you said, some of these people just stay involved in their like Pentecostal church and like adopt some fellow feeling and stuff like that so that they can just keep their lives together. Yeah. I just kept thinking about how like America just really abandons even the people that love it most. Mm. And there was, I had this real sense of tragedy while I was watching it, you know, watching Becky Fisher drive around rainy. Like, I I think it's like Missouri or something like that, wherever she is. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and you see like all the hideous strip malls. And I talked about this in the Jennifer Miller episode where she's just like in that car wash and she's like, I love American culture. And then it's this vista of like endless McDonald's and things like that. And it really invites you to be horrified. 
and I knew that moment was coming. I knew I had said that on this podcast and I was like, okay, I want to try to approach this from another perspective. So that scene comes at the end. That's really like one of the final shots of the movie. And I tried to remember all of the times that I had found this strange, liminal, tragic beauty in living in suburban flyover country. The way you can still put a life together. The way that you can have borderline like religious experiences in a Whataburger talking to friends you know and love. They flashed a Whataburger like a few minutes before that scene with her. And that hit me so hard. Yeah. Yeah. I immediately thought about the one on Thomasville across from the filling station where we used to go, you know? Going to that Whataburger was the last time I got together with like more than two other friends that I knew. Mm -hmm. And like we all just hung out and had a good time. And it felt like, oh, like I'm a part of an actual community in some place where like everybody like knows, supports each other to some extent. And we'll Mm -hmm. like take the time to just spend time together. And like, I haven't had that since that Whataburger, honestly. Exactly. And some of you are older and like have established careers and families and are still making that time to spend time with people. And some of you are younger by a lot, you know, fresh out of college, what have you. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, I just couldn't hate it or be horrified by it because I also realized I was of it in a way that I think I felt used to feel really uncomfortable about. I wanted to be more urban or I wanted to be more unique or, you know, whatever you want to satisfy your ego when you're young and don't have a strong sense of self or, or what have you, if you have any distortions in your soul that keep you from being able to look the world in the eye and be honest with yourself. And, you know, instead, I just saw a real cheap shot where I was like, this is a person who lives in like what is obviously a commercial wasteland. I've lived in places like that that has chosen to like make do and love it. And I think she thinks some incredibly weird and disturbing shit (laughs) that I don't agree with. You know, (laughs) I don't, I don't like Becky Fisher in a lot of ways. I think what she does with kids is like pretty manipulative on an emotional psychological level that is like very weird to me um, and uncomfortable, but I just can't sneer anymore like that because after having lived my twenties in flyover country working dead end jobs, having finally admitted that I'm just like a product of post-war suburbia, I'd be sneering at myself in some way. And the only people that can really afford to do that are people who really deeply hate themselves or people who are really narcissistic. Yeah, I was thinking a lot because right after she says she loves it, then she has that moment where she's saying, you know, like I wake up every day and I feel excited to be alive in the 21st century. But I also look at this world, this sick world, and think, like, I want to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, <laughs> like totally. <laughs> like, that's not weird at all. And I, I agree. There is, like, a lot, honestly, to connect with her about. Even if you don't agree with her, you're like, well, I can understand what you're up to here. And it's, like, not that strange to me that you're doing this because maybe I just get it in a way that other people don't. But the whole time, I also kept thinking, because, we talked a lot about meritocracy and universities and stuff like that already and like what they're meant to do. And so I couldn't help but keep thinking like every time they would put the camera on some kids saying like, I just want there to be like, you know, like a God fearing person in the white house or to stop all the babies from dying or whatever. And they're like crying. And and I would think like what, this is probably really tragic to like typical people watching this. And then I try to imagine like, what is their vision for these kids future? And it's like, 
Some of them seem real smart. If only they could go to college and then work at Google. That's what everybody says about that fucking Levi kid. If you watch it, oh, he's so promising. If only these people weren't distorting him, he could be like, like if only the next Steve Jobs or whatever. Yeah, he could like design surveillance equipment for like China and America at the same time. <laughs> like, and then that would be like the best because he wouldn't believe anything and he would make money. And like, that's what I'm comfortable with. And he could kind of joke mm. about stuff like this. And he'd be polite. He wouldn't believe anything weird. Yeah, and then you think like, oh, like that's the true horror of watching this is that people aren't going to do that or like your options are like, you know, if I have to look at you, you should at least be going down that pipeline. Mm -hmm. But having to look at you doing this, this is just like too disgusting. It's gauche. Like, please stop, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, well, at least these kids like believe something, even if I don't agree necessarily with that. And I think a lot of that, it's come up briefly before too, but like I have a lot of things I could say about like the sentimentalization of religion. And I think this is a really like a front row seat to that process of totally the equation of religion is feeling and sensation rather than reason and commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Like religion being like, okay, I have like, I commit to these basic first principles and I will now act on them. But that's like, it's intertwined with knowledge. It's intertwined with reason. It's intertwined with action all spheres of life are somehow contained in it in a way. And this is more of the beliefs don't necessarily need to be consistent or thought about. It's more of just like you're making a commitment to something. It's all irrational. You're just picking this thing and now you're going to get like a huge kind of buzz off of it, which seems to be more or less like what Mm -hmm. typically is going on. Like we're all just here trying to feel something. And I think even that is in large ways, like a creation of and a response to like the conditions in which people live, that that's kind of like what they're after and what they know. Totally. I read this review the other day of like, I'll see if I can find it. I doubt I will be able to this review of like this uh, trans woman wrote a book for Verso called females, where she argues that like everybody is female. And so far as they're subjugated or whatever, it's got some like pretty lazy thinking, but the review also points out that this person doesn't really believe that theory has to be true, that it's more about like capturing a mood and for people to see their own reflection in it or do whatever, you know, like that's the role of philosophy in everyday life and like political criticism. And I was like, yeah, that's just sentimentalism. Mm-hmm. Like that is totally like that is different only in content from whatever Becky, Becky Fisher's doing at Kids on Fire. Yeah. It's where there's this agreement on first principles that goes unspoken that you can locate what's actually going on and that's what that is it's so similar to the critique commonly that i think you probably have heard from people like Kantbot that like the so-called alt-right or whatever really just kind of was like a child of the already existing rad libs who like their stated kind of party goal such that there is one is like Marvel will be more woke. And then the response to that was like, no, Marvel should be less woke because that's what I'm used to. And I don't like what you're doing. I want my representation to matter more than like that kind of representation. And then they point out that like both of these people are just sort of like engaging in kind of like the same exact aesthetic critique, except it's just like for their in group. And like they're not really presenting the alternative, you know. Like neo reactionary cat turns his back on modernity meme, like all that stupid stuff. It's just like largely just like I don't mind how power is structured or what goes on 
I just want it to look more like me. And it's like, gee, I wonder who said that before you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? So like I was, I was telling you the other day, I'm just going to bring this up now. Like I was going to do a whole thing about it, but I may as well just bring it up now that I had watched like the director's cut of Zack Schneider's Batman versus Superman, the Dawn of justice. Yeah. And that my, my take on that was that I think it actually would have been really good had he not had the contractual obligations to build out the DC universe, which means to compete with Marvel on Marvel's home turf. It was actually like the parts of the movie where you feel like a kind of like uncomfortable, you know, where you have Batman who hates Superman because of everything he represents. And there is this weird like nativist thing too, but it's also that like Superman gets to do whatever he wants. He's like beloved by everybody. There's this weird like Nixonian resentment (laughs) (laughs) against like the golden boy. It's very much like Nixon versus JFK vibes, (laughs) you know, this like um, golden sun and like everything that Superman kind of represents now, which is like a child of an immigrant or like whatever, you know, like that type of fetish of the other that takes place. And it does actually, in those moments, make you ask a lot of questions about these quiet assumptions that only like a weird reactionary auteur like Zack Schneider could make you do. Like the moment where like Batman says to Superman, like, you're not brave, men are brave, you know, and Mm -hmm. like stomps on his face with spiked boots. And you're like, whoa, yeah. (laughs) Like, damn, dude. (laughs) Like this feels very different than like, you know, the critique of when you watch like any other cape shit, like you watch like the boys and it's like the ironized, like non-woke version of all the girls getting together and beating up the bad Nazi. That's a play on that happening in the Avengers final movie when that's supposed to happen and you're supposed to feel like, you know, Bob Chipman and like come in your theater seat or whatever. When Gwyneth Paltrow is like, we've got this. (laughs) It just shows you that how captured everything already is and the way that CompBot's pointing out. Yeah, I could be seduced like, oh, if only Zack Snyder could like make this non-woke thing. It's like, yeah, but like that's not the world we live in. And that's not the world we live in because of how this like immortal intellectual property works now. So like, yeah, you can pine for it, whatever. You could say like, oh, if only there's a non-woke version. But it's so easy to watch yourself with those hopes slip into that very facile, like, I just want this to look like me, like this culture of narcissism thing. And that's like what's happening when we, <laughs> when you see like that kid Levi and you're just like, oh, if only he could be a liberal striver like me because he's so smart and articulate, like then the world could be okay. Then we're all safe and it's fine. Which is, I think what's so interesting about like, they do some pretty like heinous equivalencies when it's like, okay, Becky Fisher is the same person as who's that? Uh, like mega church guy, like Ted Haggard. Is that his Ted name? Ted Haggard, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's the, basically the same as this. And that's fucking bullshit to me. It's very clear to me that she's super genuine. He is so obviously full of shit when you watch his thing. He's uncouth. Like the Catholic in me was just like, this man needs to be executed in public. <laughs> like, he was just, just having a good time. He was yeah. kind of doing like a bit, like a little stand-up kind of thing. Right. And what's so funny is he does that thing about like, you know, he like threatens to blackmail the cameraman with like his his homosexual dalliances or whatever. But when that movie came out, he just gotten caught for like paying for gay hookers and like doing a bunch of fucking meth. And that's part of what made this movie so successful when it came out is that it like sort of exposed that seamy underbelly. But again, it's just such a cheap shot. 
it's such a cheap shot against like Fisher. Like, I want to know why these people really believe what they believe. I want a documentary to show me like an understanding of this culture, not to cater to my most fragile, hysterical concerns. And that's not what this is, you know? No, it's not. You know, we've talked about the sentimentality, just frankly, how sentimental American life has become. I think like Joan Didion has a great post 9-11 essay called uh, Fixed Ideas or something about that, that like it was very telling that after 9-11 and towards the invasion of Iraq, no serious questions were asked and said there was a recommitment to very sentimental fixed ideas. They hate us for our freedom. No one knows why this happened. They were just madmen. There was no sense of irony which is perhaps one of the most important sensibilities you can have when trying to understand the historical political world, right? That we had funded the Mujahideen, including Osama bin Laden himself, and that had created the arc for that to happen. So when I look at Becky Fisher, when I look at all of the stuff, what I see is how also sentimental our politics have become. Like I really think of like AOC, when I think of there is this aggrieved slave morality that's so baked in to how we consider anything that you can't argue on principles. You're arguing on someone's personal feeling. Yeah. Like fundamentally it is emotivism, like in the formulation of Alistair McIntyre, where it's just, we all understand that on some level we're just engaging I like actually I really like how he put this at After Virtue when he says like if all speech acts are reduced to mere statements of personal preference then there's no possibility for non-coercive speech. And yes. I think that's sort of fundamentally like where we've been at for a while which is that I can't actually just talk to somebody and we can't discuss objects of true existence outside of ourselves and reason about them and come to some sort of agreement or whatever like all it could really ever be is like, I need to subtly manipulate you while you subtly manipulate me and one of us will get our way in the end. And to me, it's pretty clear how like that degenerates into this sort of easily. And then you form these groups of like, well, I'm in this group. So like, we're all collectively coercing other groups. And as long as my people are like, yes, queen winning, then like, it's all good. And yeah, or if my people are just like MAGA based, like then yeah. we're winning. <laughs> yeah, like pill own the libs. Yeah. And it's just like there's I mean, obviously there's something fundamentally wrong with that on a deep level if you care about things like longevity or truth or mm-hmm. like any possibility of or like you having, believe that like the time horizon of society is beyond a 10 year window or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And if you want like to have a society that has some sort of basis, and I mean we could talk about Rawls a little bit and be like he thought that we could all live like that and just sort of like that the fact that we engaged in market relations with one another and then retreated to like our private clubs in the evening. Mm-hmm. Oh that's would, Rory. Like, that was Rory. Rory, sorry. Sorry, Rawls, you had some other idea. But yeah, the like the Rorian idea of basically completely mutually exclusive, like groups of people all with equally irrational beliefs interacting only on a monetary like market basis before retreating from one another to their personal gatherings mm-hmm. and that that could somehow constitute a plural society that would work. I think 
that's a really interesting formulation because it totally discounts the fact that politics happens at all in that society. Like nowhere in that formulation did it account for like political activity of any kind. Mm-hmm. It almost just assumes that like we're in hermetically sealed units and then we'll go out to trade. But it's like, you know, you brought up AOC, like obviously there's a lot of political activity going on and it's going on on that basis. Mm-hmm. And it's not really like, it's irresoluble on a fundamental level. Um, and then like your only hope is sort of to capture power and to like manipulate and coerce the people who didn't manage to capture power. I guess that's sort of like the end goal. And it's fundamentally like mm-hmm. a cultural sort of thing too. Like you capture power, leave the current arrangements intact, but like your culture can now flourish because you captured the power. And this is kind of the vision of all sides that have any meaningful constituency. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how compliance is created, you know, and that's the like master vision of political power right now is compliance, which is basically being an HR reactionary. That's what, (laughs) that's what, that's what you're doing there. You know, I wrote this piece for um, Popula a while back that was on the art of Leon Golub and a crucial part of it got edited out maybe because I didn't argue it well enough, but also because I think it was kind of against the and the way it worked out with the timing and that, you know, I frankly just didn't have the self-worth to push back against it being edited out. But one of the things that I explore in it is the idea of like sort of the dark night model where it's like, well, I'm doing justice so I can kind of do whatever I want. And that that is a really big governing ideology, especially in the Bush era. You know, that's the Abu Ghraib shit that's like Kofor Black being like, I want to see flies walking across their eyes out in the Middle Eastern deserts or whatever. That seems to come directly from a type of ethos that was more covert in the 80s that had to do with our wars. And then it comes home to roost. The thing that got taken out is one of the things I argue about how you get there in America, how you get to the dark night, why this really comes home to roost after 9-11. And it's because you have to see yourself as a victim first. Because if you're a victim in America, no one can argue with you, right? Because they're denying your personal experience. And not only that, you're pure. Because otherwise, you wouldn't be a victim. Victims aren't bad people. Victims are good people. That's what we think. Most Americans probably believe that, whether they say it or not, on all sides. You can see that when you watch these videos of these stupid street fights between like the Proud Boys and whoever watch how they get edited by different sides and stuff like that. Because the silent agreement is that what confers your legitimacy on the viewer is whether or not you're a victim. And so once you're a victim, you have permission to become a dark knight because you're already just, you're already pure. You could do no wrong. Everything that you do is a priori justified by what bad has already happened. That is exactly the ideology we walk out of from 9-11. And now I think it's incredibly pervasive. And importantly, all of this stuff to pull together the McIntyre, the things we've been saying, and our Christopher Lash series. This is a society of double standards when you do. No democracy can survive like that because it assumes inequality instead of basic equality. It assumes a tiered system of society, even I would say in law. That's not a democracy. That's something else. It's actually, it's interesting that you point out that we can't really say that what is the etiology or the like, what is the origin of the way that 
people would say like, oh, the hegemonic liberal discourse is like, you can uh, assume the mantle of victimhood and then you can be like utterly moral forever. And it's interesting to point out that it didn't start as like a hegemonically liberal discourse, but it's been going back and forth for like a while now. Like that's absolutely also how conservatives have seen it too. Like if you grew up as a Christian, you were probably told that Christianity was under attack and that no one cared and no one was going to save you if you didn't fight for Christianity. And like you were good because you were, you know, it's a very similar kind of story. And I think it's been rehashed so many times for anybody who wants to like aspire to have some kind of, of political representation or control. And you're able, the most insidious thing to me is you're able to appropriate the residual force of moral language for yourself without actually having to do anything related to morality. Watching that play out, it's almost like sickening to see somebody just appropriate to themselves to like arrogate to themselves like virtue just by virtue of being themselves and then kind of like go forth yeah even in the face of like actual real virtuous things getting trodden under their feet as they go mm-hmm. forward and you're like this is insane to watch and I can't even like talk to the person next to me about it because they're just like cheering it on you know what I mean like that's yeah. the feeling it's a knife in your stomach, man. It's a twisting knife in your stomach watching shit like that. Where you're like, you haven't done anything. I mean, it's basically what happens when Obama wins the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. By a mere fact of being a black man who was elected president. That's it. That's all he had. He had to be himself and then get elected president. Yeah. That's crazy. Because obviously we know everything. He, he got pretty good at killing people, as he said in his own words, you know, when he was in office. It's just... It's inconscionable. Like it's really, it's really wretched. And I think what sucks is that there really doesn't seem to be a true outside as we're sort of talking about. If we're talking about why like nothing feels possible and things like that, this is a shared problem. It's not a left or right problem in some way. And it sucks that no one really seems to be able to get a handle on something like a shared sense of morality. There is only a shared sense of moralism, which is very, very different because that has all the characteristics we've already just described. Like, I don't know what the solution is to that. All I can say is that, like, there are often days where I recoil and discuss at the mendacity and the manipulativeness of basic discourse around how our polity should be governed. I was talking to a friend of ours, Matt, the other day. He was asking me some questions about my own political turns, you know, which, uh, which was a, like a two and a half hour conversation. But one of the things that I said was, I now understand that part of the engine of how this works is particularity, as you were saying, John, like, well, I'm this group, I'm that group. Here's how we try to like manipulate and force our compliance onto other people. There seems to be some sort of understanding between classical liberals and those of a socialist persuasion or whatever to a universalism. There are two different takes on what a universalist project might be. And I think we're going to see a lot of surprising alliances along those lines because of that commitment in response to the sentimental particularism that ends up just being like HR compliance with woke or based characteristics. Yeah. And I, I would imagine from my limited experience, so only provisionally that like a large amount of people are probably more interested in something like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. than what they currently see going on 
And that's why people like Matt Taibbi can probably make plenty of money on Substack is because they can just feed right into that desire for people mm-hmm. to sort of talk as if that could and is real. Like, you know what I mean? Like could be and is real. Like, oh yeah, like there's just basic standards. We live in a country that has a sort of like a basic liberal contractual structure and it requires certain things just be a priori true to function. And I just want those things to be true again. And one of those is like, like a basic equality, like you're talking mm-hmm. about fundamental equality and, you know, you might diverge on different points, like particular welfare programs or whatever. But I think that there's a lot of common ground against the particularism and probably it would appeal to like a lot of what you might call regular people yeah. who are just kind of like trying to survive day to day in increasingly economic stressful times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think most people just want a fair shake. You yeah. Know? That, I think that that's, what's been so brutal to me is to see all these people who are just like, stay inside, wear a mask. If you go to your, see your family on Thanksgiving, you're a mass murderer. And then like they're all in a huge, densely packed crowd dancing to the YMCA outside the White House when Trump loses. And I'm and they're all like, Yes. And I'm like, I hate all of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this like what else could you do? Yeah. What else could you feel when you look at that? But just like disgust. Yeah, yeah. I'll end it on this. The the you know, obviously this comes out two and a half weeks after we record, but that thing that I sent you of the Biden campaign crowdfunding their transition team, even though they have tens of millions of dollars and yeah. like going hat in hand to their supporters. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I do think that that's undignified. I do think it doesn't speak to somebody who's willing to govern. But the reason that might be compelling to supporters is because what confers them their moral authority is their limp victim status. If that's something they have to do, then you know they're going to be good when they get to govern, because how could someone in such a position ever turn out to be bad? That's the game. And I don't want to play it. (laughs) No, I don't want to play it either. (laughs) We need to figure out what the off-ramps are to this, because this is part of what makes it feel like nothing is possible. So um, after this, uh, we'll be doing some other stuff. We're going to talk to Kyungmin's son to get a long perspective on this in a couple weeks, I think. And y'all should expect a 2020 postmortem at some point. Um, We might try to bring a guest on for that. I don't know if we will or not. But as we reach towards the end of the year, I think given the way that everything gets memory hold, it's worth trying to recap to the best of our ability and do a little history of the present. So thank you all for listening. Stay safe out there. We won't judge you if you go see your family for Thanksgiving and be well. Catch you later.